from Exodus 19. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning, and before we continue to consider this passage, I invite you to please join with me in prayer. Father, even as we see uh, these words, we are reminded of, of who it is that we are speaking to and who it is uh, that we're trying to hear. Lord, you are glorious. You are awe-inspiring. You are far bigger and greater than our imaginations can conceive of. And so, Lord, we ask that even now you would give us just a taste of the reality of who you are, that we might fear you and revere you, and that as you are one who draws near to us and shows his love to us, that you would speak to us now, that you would help us to listen, that we might worship you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever wondered what it would be like to meet God? 
My guess is if you have been a Christian for any length of time, the answer to this is yes. Certainly, I have wondered that many times, especially as a kid, because let's face it, that is one of the most challenging aspects of the faith. We believe by faith, not by sight, we're told. And man, sometimes we would love to be able to believe by sight. It's hard sometimes, or oftentimes, when we are praying to believe that there is someone there who hears us. As we look at the world around us to believe that God is involved, even though we can't see him, wouldn't we want to just meet God? Our passage this morning has a moment where that exact thing happens, where God meets with his people. And when he does, it is terrifying. It begins with really what's clearly an answer to prayer, or more specifically, a fulfillment of God's promise. You might remember, we looked a number of weeks ago at Exodus chapter 3, where where God reaches out to Moses. This is the first time Moses has met God. This is in the burning bush, and he says to Moses that you need to go, and you need to bring the people out of Egypt, and Moses is like, what? No, I can't do this. And what what does God say in response? He says, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you, and he's talking there about all of Israel, shall worship me on this mountain. And when he's saying on this mountain, he is speaking at Mount Sinai. He's saying, you will know that I have done this when I bring all of you back to this very place. And now where are we? The very beginning tells us that Israel left from Rephidim and they got to the desert, the wilderness of Sinai. This is exactly what God has said was going to happen. Now they are seeing this this dry, rocky, barren mountain that God says, I'm going to bring you back here and we're going to meet together. And so that's what happens. I mean, first we see as the people of Israel set camp on the, you know, like not quite at the foot of the mountain, a little distant from it, but where they can see the mountain. Moses then hikes up, maybe partway up the mountain. Maybe it's even to the very place that he was before where the burning bush was. And he meets with God. And in case he has forgotten the significance of this moment, or in case, more to the point, the people of Israel don't realize what's going on, what does God say to him? He says, tell Israel... You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and how I brought you to myself. Saying, this is, this is me answering exactly. This is me fulfilling my promise. Do you see what I have done? I have, I have swooped in like an eagle. Now, it took me a while to think about what he's, he's saying here, but imagine, and it's kind of hard to do this, but imagine if an eagle, when we were standing outside, just kind of like with his claws, grabbed our jacket and just pulled us up and pulled us out. One, that would be terrifying, obviously. But the other thing we could say is wherever he takes us, we couldn't go, hey, I got here all on my own, right? I mean, there is, there is zero that we are contributing to the process of moving us from one place to another. We are entirely helpless. And God is saying, that's what happened here. You did not fight your way out of Egypt, not through stealth or cleverness. I swooped in like an eagle, and I carried you. I carried you through the Red Sea. I carried you through the wilderness, providing you food, providing you water. I have brought you here. It is my grace that has done this. And where is here? I have brought you to myself. That's what he says. You have seen how I brought you out of Egypt to myself. 
That's what this story actually is all about. It's not just about the ten plagues or about the drama. It's about God seeing a people and in love drawing them to himself. That's what Exodus is about. That's what the Bible is about. If you want to understand the gospel, fundamentally this is what it is. It's God seeing people who are helpless, utterly incapable of doing what they need to do, and stooping down and bringing them to himself all out of grace. And so that's how this begins. Moses, people of Israel, I have done what I said. I have brought you near to me. But immediately as we understand that this is what's going on, that that God has brought Israel to meet him at this kind of rendezvous point, at this mountain, there is a note that makes this story a bit confusing to us. And that is there is this clear distance that God is establishing in this moment between him and his people. Perhaps you notice it. It's, it's kind of set up in a number of different ways. First, remember, it's Moses who goes up and speaks to God. And then God sends Moses back, and Moses then speaks to the people. And when the people respond and say, yes, whatever God has said we will do, then Moses goes back up. He speaks to God. God gives more instructions. Do you see that there's this, this connection so that God and the people aren't speaking directly? And what's more, when God says, I am going to appear to the people, he says, I'm going to appear in a thick cloud. And the point of a thick cloud is it hides. When I come to meet with my people, I am going to stay hidden, God is saying. And then God says, you need to set up a fence, a fence that keeps the people from ever drawing too near. In fact, so significant, so important was this fence at the foot of the mountain that he says, if anyone crosses it, they will need to be immediately killed. You see, there's this this distance, which at least at first seems strange to us, doesn't it? I mean, we just said that God has done everything to bring his people near, and now he's saying, stay away. Imagine if I really wanted to see some good friends of mine from Australia, and so I invited them, I paid for the plane tickets to bring them out, I rented a, a vacation house on the beach, and they came out, and then I stayed in my room the whole time and only spoke out through the window, or, or just with a cell phone. That would seem strange, wouldn't it? But, but in some ways, that's, that seems to be what's going on here. Why? Why is God staying so distant? Well, the answer comes if we just continue paying attention to what takes place in these moments. For three days, God's people are told that they need to prepare themselves, consecrate themselves in a number of different symbolic ways, both relationally and also in terms of just cleaning. It's, it's the idea of sanctify, get yourself ready to meet with me. And then I can just imagine on the third day, it's early in the morning, you have people who are waking up, they're, you know, getting out of their tents, seeing the hot sun beginning to come over the horizon. It's dry, it's, it's dusty, the crisp air soon is getting hot. And yet they see on this mountain that's a little bit in the distance, but they can see it well. There's this cloud that's beginning to form on the top, and it's dark, which is strange in the desert. And it, and it gets bigger and bigger until it seems to be almost filling the sky, so the sky is getting darker, and they start hearing these rumbles they realize they're hearing thunder, and the thunder gets louder and louder until every time they're hearing it, they're flinching because it is so loud, they're being 
shaken by it. And then in, in an even stranger moment, they hear something else besides just the thunder. There is the sound, the single note of a trumpet that is sustained and is lasting. And the longer it goes, the louder and louder this trumpet sound is that is coming from the mountain so that they are feeling like they need to cover their ears. It's so intense. And then Moses, hearing the trumpet, signals to the elders. And the elders signals to everyone, including you if you're in that group, that it's time to start moving. And so you start walking, and you walk towards the thunder and the lightning and the trumpet sound, which is terrifying in and of itself. But then when you get to the fence where you're not allowed to go any further than that, and you look up, you see that at the top of the mountain, it is on fire. Hot, intense, burning flame, bigger than you can possibly imagine. And you realize that what you are doing right now is that you are drawing near to the very presence of God. What we have here is what is sometimes referred to as a theophany. A theophany is the word for when God makes himself tangible, sensible through human senses to people. We see it a number of different times in the Old Testament. That's a theophany in some ways is what happened when Moses met God in the burning bush. And, and we should recognize that each of these theophanies, whether it's kind of an angelic appearance or a burning bush or this, this is not saying this is exactly what God looks like. Because, of course, God doesn't look like anything because he is spirit. But what we have is God taking on things that we are familiar with and using them so that even in our senses we can come to understand who this God is. And that's what's happening here. Consider the thunder. What, what does thunder do? Have you ever been outdoors in the middle of a thunderstorm? Not, not in a house, not in a car, but actually outdoors when you hear thunder, and not just in the distance, but when it's one of those moments where there's almost no gap between seeing the lightning and the thunder, and it's a loud clap. When that happens, you want to crawl up in a ball because you feel like you are in the presence of power. And that's what this thunder is communicating. As, as the people of Israel are moving towards the mountain, they feel that they are coming before someone who is enormously powerful. With a trumpet, and in that day a trumpet was not a musical instrument. It was something that was meant to signal, to get attention. It would maybe either announce that it was time for battle or announce that there was going to be a, a proclamation from the king, but it was always meant to, to take people out of their stupor, out of their distraction, and pay attention. And that's, and that's what this trumpet is doing here. It is saying, pay attention. It is pulling people out of their spiritual stupor. Just a few minutes ago, these were people who believed they were important and significant and the center of their universe. And now they are being pulled out of that and they realize they are so much smaller than they realized. And then fire. If you have been before a big bonfire, you know how intense it can be, how how frightening, how wild, even more so, of course, if it were something like a forest fire that's not a controlled fire, how, how unpredictable, how destructive. And yet the people of Israel also would have seen fire having a different purpose, that fire was purifying. It's what purifies meat so that it can be eaten. It's what purifies gold so that all of the impurities are burned away and what is left is perfect. And so as they see fire, they, they think of of what is wild, that God cannot be tamed. He is not predictable. He is both destructive and purifying as he comes to destroy all that is wrong and to purify and make this world beautiful again. 
And I want you, if you haven't been already, just to imagine what it must have been like in this moment to hear the thunder shaking you and to feel the power, to hear this trumpet that is just driving you to focus on things and not notice anything else, to see this wild, destructive, purifying fire, what would you do in that moment? Well, we know what God's people does because we're told in the end of verse 16, all the people in the camp trembled. I mean, wouldn't that be how we respond? In fact, it's not just the people in the camp. Do you notice this? Verse 18 at the very end, the whole mountain trembled greatly. Now, as I understand it, mountains are not prone to fear, partly because they don't have emotions, but even if they did, there would be very little that I think could make them afraid. But here in this moment, it doesn't matter if you are someone who is big or someone who is small, if you are an animal, if you are a plant, even if you are the very mountain itself, you will tremble in the presence of a holy God. And that word holy really is what summarizes what we have here. Holy is the word that scripture uses to speak of what makes God, God. God is is unique. There is no other God, right? He is separate and different from all other things. And the word that is used to describe what makes God different from the rest of us is holy. It describes God's particular glory, his particular power, his particular eternity, his, his righteousness, his beauty. It is the godness of God. That's the word that holy is speaking of. And if we, if we just pause and think of what it must have been like in that moment, to stand before a holy God. I don't think we have any questions left as to why God kept his people at a distance. Because in that moment, we would know deep down what God very clearly knew, and that is that a sinful people cannot come too close to God or they will die. Because when you draw near to God, at least a couple of things happen. First, when you come near to God, you are utterly and completely exposed. Because the light of who God is, the truth, removes any self-deception. We don't realize it. I know I don't realize it. I, I believe this more by faith than I do by sight. But I've sensed it. that There is a lot of deception that goes on inside of each of us. Much more than I think we recognize. Because that's how we cope with life. Again and again, we encounter things that are uncomfortable for us, things that make us feel ashamed, things that cause us grief, things that, that make us afraid. And sometimes we face those uncomfortable feelings head on, but other times we, we, don't, we don't have the ability to. And so what do we do? We, we tell ourselves lies or we, we distract ourselves or we just try to forget those things that are causing those feelings. And what we're doing is we're covering it up. And over time, our whole life is like this massive landfill where there's all of these things that are buried below the surface so that we can just keep on coping with life. But when you come before God, who is truth himself, all of the stuff that is buried just comes to the surface and you see who you are completely and it is your undoing it is devastating 
I mean, we see that when we look at moments where people meet with God. Isaiah, in this great moment in Isaiah chapter 6, where he is brought into the presence of God and these angels are crying out, holy, holy, holy is God. What does he say? I am undone because I've seen God and I am unclean. He sees who he is clearly and he, he's melting. Peter, in the New Testament, when, when Jesus does a miracle and, and Peter recognizes there's something about God and what Jesus is doing, he doesn't fully understand it, but even just his slight understanding causes him to fall on his face and he says, get away from me for I am a sinner. As he comes near to God, he is exposed and he cannot handle it. But what's more, when we come near to God, we experience God's righteousness his holiness, and no sinner can stand before that. I mean, Scripture warns us of that. When we have, following this Mount Sinai moment, a, a tabernacle, a tent that God can live among his people is built, and the room that is supposed to especially be God's room, the holy place, no one can ever enter except one day, one person, once a year. But any other time, if anyone steps, he will immediately die, we're told. Hundreds of years later, when the ark, which is symbolizing the very seat that God sits on in this most holy place, is being transported and it's about to fall over, someone quick reaches to try to keep it from getting dirty, and the moment he touches it, he dies. And the point is that sinful people cannot stand in the presence of a holy God. Because our God loves what is good. He is just. He is righteous. When he sees what corrupts, what hurts, what destroys, he hates. He must put an end to it. And the problem is we're those who corrupt, who hurt, who destroy. And so before the holy God, we cannot stand. And so this is what Israel is experiencing in this moment. In the thunder, with the trumpet, with the fire, with the fence shielding them, they are both discovering that they cannot get too close to God and they're experiencing the reality that they worship a holy God. And before I continue, I just want to pause and say there are things about our relationship to God that are different from Israel's, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But I hope you understand that God continues to be that holy awesome, terrifying God. He has not changed. Hebrews 12 says, our God is a consuming fire. And so let us worship him with awe and reverence. If we do not tremble when we think of what it means that we draw near to God, we do not understand who God is. There is another part of this passage that is really important, a part that I have already alluded to, and that is even as we see the distance that needs to be kept between a holy God and his people, we also see this, this loving commitment on God's part to draw near. So backing up to where we were looking at before, where there's this, you have seen how I brought you to myself on eagle's wings. Then he says in verse 5, now therefore, God says, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. 
and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, there is so much here. In some ways, you could see this as one of the fundamental verses in all of the Bible for understanding what God is doing as he's redeeming. And notice where it begins. If you will keep my covenant, he is preparing them because he is about to form a covenant. And a covenant is something that is incredibly important to understanding how we relate to God. A covenant is not just a contract. A contract can be cold and impersonal. But it's not just a friendship. There's something that's stronger and more binding about it. A covenant is a formally bound relationship. The best example we can think of in our day is a marriage. What is a marriage? It's more than just a friendship, but it's not anything less. But it is a friendship. It is a loving relationship where there are promises that are made to make it even more trustworthy and, and fundamental and significant. And God is saying, I am going to form a covenant with you. I desire a relationship with you that will last. And he says, and I have a plan for you, a plan that is beautiful. I am going to make you my treasured possession. You know, kings owned the whole land that they were king over. And of course, God owns all of the world. But he's saying, you are going to be especially mine. You are going to be my treasure, my beloved. I will prize you. He says, my plan for you is to be a kingdom of priests. Priests are the connection point between God and the rest of the world. Priests are given special access to God. And he's saying, that's you. You, each of you, you will know me. You will have access to me. And I am going to use you so that you can bless the whole world so that all of the world can come to know who I am, can come to see my glory through you. You will be my priests reigning over the world and drawing all people to me. Isn't that beautiful? And he says, and I'm going to make you a holy nation. Now, we've already said holy is what makes God God. It is what distinguishes him from everything else. And now God is saying, I'm going to share that. All that I am, my, my beauty, my glory, my righteousness, I'm going to share with you so that you are now going to be different. You are going to be beautiful. You are going to be glorious. You're going to be righteous like the rest of the world, isn't it? I am going to change you so that you give yourself in love and show the world who I am. Now just pausing for a moment, I want us to understand that what God is saying here is I am committed to making you what you were meant to be. If we go back to the very beginning of Genesis, if we see what God's intent for us was, we see this. God intended us to be his special possession, his beloved. And by making us his image bearers, he gave us this mission to, to show the world who he is. He made us to be holy, to reflect his glory, his beauty, to have purpose. And God is now saying, I am going to restore you so that you can be fully human. Because until we are that, until we are God's beloved people, until we are on mission showing God to, to the world, we are not fully human. And we're always lacking God saying, I am going to restore you. I'm going to make you whole. And how is he going to do that? By drawing near, by forming a covenant by being their God and deepening his relationship with them. And it's important for us to recognize this as well. I've said that we need to recognize that God is holy, but that must never be at the expense 
of the amazing reality that God desires to be in relationship with you and with me. He desires to make us his treasured possession, to give us a purpose, a mission, to make us beautiful like him, that we can be a blessing to the world. We need to hold on to this as well. And let me say, that's, that's a tension, isn't it? To hold on to the reality that our God is holy, is powerful, is glorious, upon, by whom no sinful person can draw near, and yet our God wants to draw near to us, and he loves us. Usually we can only hold on to one of these truths. Either we hold on to the distance and the, the holiness of God, and we forget how much God loves us. Or we allow ourselves to begin to realize that God loves us, but then we shrink God because it cannot be imaginable to us that someone who is like God could love us. And yet the calling as Christians is to hold both together. Now the difficulty is there's a tension. There is a tension that we are supposed to feel in these verses. How can a holy God who must remain distant from sinners also draw near so that his people can be this beloved special possession? And it is a tension that actually is carried throughout the whole Old Testament. It's a tension we see in the tabernacle. The tabernacle is God living with his people and yet he can't get too close. No one can get into the most holy place. It's a tension we see throughout the history of Israel where God is saying, I am your God and I will be faithful and yet Israel keeps on rejecting and sinning against it. How are those two gonna hold together? And it's a tension we feel, isn't it? When we pray and we remember who God is, how can we possibly draw near to this God? And yet in this passage, we also see the solution that God has. We see a hint, a foreshadowing of how God is going to resolve this tension where he wants to draw near and yet we cannot stand in his presence. And the solution we see is a mediator. How, how does God speak to his people in this chapter? We've already spoken of it, haven't we? Moses goes up and for some reason Moses can draw near to God. And Moses hears God, and he comes back to the people, and he speaks to them. And then he goes back and forth and back and forth. And through this, now, God's people can actually hear God's word. They can be shaped. They can be listened. They can form a covenant. This meter, mediator is the connection point. Now, it's an imperfect solution here. Because Moses will never perfectly represent God to the people. They will never fully come to see who God is through Moses. They will hear the word, but it's going to be indirect. And Moses isn't truly fully qualified to come into God's presence. The moment he sees God, he's told he can only see a part of God or else he would die. And he ultimately sins in such a way that he too eventually dies. But, but what we see in Moses points forward. It is meant as a shadow so that we can begin to anticipate the solution. You know, Moses himself says, there will come a day when one who is like me will be sent to you. And we know who that mediator is. It's Jesus. Do you understand why we so deeply needed Jesus? When Jesus came, it's more than a theophany. It is God himself drawing near to us in such a way that we actually can see God. Jesus says, to see me is to see the Father. If we want to know who God is, we can see Jesus. And as Jesus, as Jesus comes before God, having 
having died the death that we deserve and paying for our sins, having risen and then also ascending into God's presence. He comes without fear as as the perfectly righteous one. He comes carrying us with him. He carries praying, he comes praying for us. And what he has done has meant that we can come before God now unafraid. Hebrews puts it this way. Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Let me just say that again. Since we have confidence. Confidence to come before the one who thunders where the trumpet sounds. Confidence to come before the consuming fire. Confidence without fear. Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near to God in full assurance of faith. We have a perfect mediator who has allowed us to come near to God. And every time now that we pray, every time that we are gathering, we have a privilege that the people of Israel never experienced. That we can draw near to God himself without fear. And God draws near to us. His Holy Spirit draws near to us. And, and who do we become? Well, if you are a believer in Christ, this is what Peter says you are right now. First Peter says you are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're not fully there. We're told that now we see him, but as in a shadow or as in a mirror, then we shall see him face to face, and when we see him, we will be fully changed. But we are being changed because our holy God draws near and he is making us whole through Christ Jesus. And now we have the privilege of taking a moment to drawing near to God, to come before him in prayer. And so I invite you even as we think of who this God is and as we think of how we have failed him to come, not afraid, but knowing that all of our sins are paid for, to come acknowledging our sin, being transparent before the God who exposes all things and recognizing that we are forgiven by this loving God. Let's spend some time in confession and prayer and then I'll lead us in a little while. Father, you alone know who we really are. But yet we seek to name ourselves honestly before you. 
Lord, we acknowledge before you that we, even though you are changing us, that we still sin against you. We still do not love you as you deserve. We do not love our neighbors as ourselves. We are not what you created us to be. And Lord, we grieve over our sin because we know it is destructive. And Father, as we even see just a portion of how we have wronged you, we take shelter in the reality that you have forgiven. And we ask again that you would forgive us our sins. And we ask not because of anything we have deserved, because we do not, but we ask because of Jesus, our great mediator who has died for us. Lord, would you please not only forgive us, but renew us, restore us, help us more and more to be that royal priesthood, to be your holy people who look more and more like you, like Jesus, so that the world might see, might know you, and be changed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here again the words that we just heard just a moment ago from 1 Peter. But you, brothers and sisters, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Thanks be to God.